about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. So Genesis chapter 22, starting at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. But they reached the place God, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Bathsheba and Abraham stayed in Bathsheba. Sometime later, Abraham was told, Milcah is also a mother she has borne sons to your brother Nahar, Uz the firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Fildish, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight sons to Abraham's brother Nahar. His concubine, whose name was Rema, also had sons, Teba, Gam, Tahash, and Marka.
Hi, my name is Sam, if you haven't met me, and uh, I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 to 14, which can be found on page 24 of the Red Pew Bibles. That's Genesis 26, verses 1 to 14. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offering, all nations on earth will be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, because he was afraid to say she was my wife. He thought, The men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She is really your wife. Why did you say, She is my sister? Isaac answered him, Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife and you would have been brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold, because the Lord had blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. Well, good evening. Great to be with you. My name is Matt, one of the ministers here. How about we pray as we listen to God and his word. Father, you are more willing to speak than we are to hear. And so we pray now that you would take your words and that you would push them into the marrow of our hearts. That we would hear you as you deserve to be heard. And that our lives would be transformed as a result. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I was pretty excited when we decided to do this series through Genesis. Big swathes, magnificent characters. You have Abraham, the father of three religions, the great man of faith from whom faith comes into all the world, the father of all believers. You have Jacob, the man who wrestled with an angel. I mean, wrestled with an angel and limped for the rest of his life. Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, who then becomes a prince, right? Great series, fantastic characters. Then I got handed Isaac. Now, I don't know, you may have walked into church tonight and not have read the Bible before. Welcome, fantastic that you're here. But let me, let me tell you, Isaac is in the top ten most boring characters in the entire Bible. I mean, there is nothing in his life that he actually does, whether heroic or villainous. I think, and this is going to come on the screen, he is, in fact, the original child celebrity. 
of the Bible and of all times. He's kind of the Haley Joel Osmond. He's the Macaulay Culkin. He's the guy you know because of something that happened when he was young, and that's the, kind of the only reason you know about him at all. Uh, one of the uh, people I read about Isaac said, Isaac's story is just the doorway. It's just the hinge in Genesis. He's just the way you get from Abraham to Jacob. Imagine that. Imagine your life being described as a doorway, as a hinge. Remember Mataroni? Oh, uh, yeah, the hinge. Not so great. Despite the passivity of Isaac's life and the boring nature of the narrative that kind of flows from that, uh, there's something quite profound that he teaches us about faith and about life. Isaac's passivity means that everything he receives is a gift. Everything is a provision. Every part of his life is a testament to the fact that the God of the Bible will always provide for his promises. And that nothing can indeed stop him. In fact, as we move through Isaac this evening, it's good to put above us that question of, uh, I think it can dwell in our hearts and grow through circumstances and just the ordinariness of life. The question of whether, how do you actually know that God will provide? How is it that I actually know that God is working for something in my life and helping me day after day? How do I know that? And what is he doing? Let's put that as a banner above us as we explore Isaac. Uh, The way we're going to explore Isaac is like a child celebrity. We're going to look at the incident of his youth that we read in Genesis 22, then look at the fallout in three scenarios that follow in the hinge of his life. So let's go to uh, chapter 22 to get started. Now this is his child celebrity moment, and what we see here in this part of the story is God's glorious provision. And it's worth just coming to the side for a second and recognizing that this is an uncomfortable text, right? We talked about this a bit last week. But there's something about this text that some people will open and look at and say, this is a good reason for me to close the Bible and not open it again. Because I don't know if I can be on, a board, on board with a God who asks things like this, like God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. The way we're going to look at this story is how it works as a whole. And then how that works in the whole of the Bible, because that's what you do with difficult texts. You actually engage them and see what they mean within their context and within the wider story of the Bible. But in verse 1, we have this interesting thing thrown up at us. God tests Abraham. What does that mean? Why does God test people and what is it about? Uh, As you move through the Old Testament... Uh, the idea of testing comes up a number of times. And one, time God, uh, one of the times God describes what it's about. And he actually says, it's about the heart. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 8 verse 2. He says, he led the Israelites through the wilderness to humble and to test them in order to know what was in your heart. God tests his people to reveal what is underneath their worship of him. And at the same time as that moment of revelation, he often leads them into a moment that reveals who he is. And so it becomes a moment where their hearts can be remolded and reshaped. Testing is about God impressing himself on the character of our hearts. And that's what's happening with Abraham in this story. 
His heart is both revealed and renewed. What's at the center of this is Abraham's son, Isaac, our passive hero of the day. He is the longed-for son of a promise. And he is beloved by Abraham. And God asked him to sacrifice that son on an altar. What this is about is about the temptation we all face, really, to trust the gift rather than the giver, to trust what we have received above the one we have received it from. And so what God is doing in this story is pushing onto the heart of Abraham the reality, not of his incredible faithfulness, not the the extent of Abraham's faith, but the extent of God's faithfulness the extent to which God will always provide for his promises, even when men are, in fact, a little unfaithful. I think Abraham even has a little inkling of this. You see this in verse 5, when he's halfway there and he says to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there and we will worship and then we will come back to you. Now, the, the offering that Abraham is to make of Isaac uh, was one that you burned on the altar whole until it became ash. And so there is no going back for Isaac if Abraham goes through with this. And yet in verse 5, he has an inkling that his son will come back with him. And in some way, as he says to Isaac himself in verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so Abraham constructs the altar binds his own son, lays him on top, and raises his knife in the air before an angel summons him to the ram in the corner. And God himself provides a sacrifice in Isaac's place. You see, what happens here is not that God's command is thrown aside, but that it is fulfilled by God's own glorious provision. You see, Isaac is killed on the altar as the ram turns to ash. The ram is in place of the sun and is burned whole. And as we look at this story, and as we see it as a story of God's provision and his faithfulness, suddenly we're pulled into the wider story that we know and we love and we see echoes of here. And we realize that this isn't just a story about how, how God would press the, the provision of God into one heart, but how God would provide for us in all time the shape of what he is providing for throughout all of Scripture and all time. God's great provision is not the death of Isaac, but the death of his son. Not a passive son bound on an altar, but an active son who, ta- who, who offers himself up on a cross. Though Abraham will suffer no loss, God the Father will suffer infinite loss in pouring out the wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the way God provides for us is at cost to himself. He provides life for us and forgiveness of sin by the death of his son. You see, that's what God's provision looks like. It tastes like. It tastes like death. 
It tastes like the death of the Messiah. And it really helps us, I think, as we start to throw around that question of how do I know God's going to provide and what does that look like? Well, I know he's going to provide because he provides in his son at cost to himself. But what does it look like? It might look like the cross. It may look like provision hidden underneath curse. It may taste bitterly like death. But the cross is both the evidence of God's love and willingness to provide and the shape of his provision for all time. You see, this story in Abraham points us to the fact that in all things, in all ways, God our Father is providing for the mission of his Son and his glory. And that is the thing we are to carry through life with us and through our deathly circumstances. The death of the Messiah on our behalf and God's willingness to always gloriously provide for the glory of his Son and for his promises made to fruition in our lives. But how does that work? What does that actually look like? How is it that we depend upon that in everyday life? What does it taste like? What does it feel like? For that, I want to move through three stories in Isaac's life and look at the fallout of his child's celebrity. The first one is in chapter 24. And the first thing we see about provision in Isaac's life is that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Now, Genesis 24 is a very ordinary story. Genesis 22 is kind of high and mighty and amazing and kind of otherworldly in a lot of ways. Genesis 24 is just about a dad who's trying to marry off his son because grandkids really matter, right? He's promised more than the stars in the sky. He's going to marry, marry him off. And he has an employee, and he gives the employee the task of getting the wife from the faraway land, from where his relatives are, and he gets a wife, and he comes back, and Isaac's actually happy. Passive, once again. Somehow it ends up being the longest chapter in Genesis, <laughs> if you can believe it, 67 verses long. And it's pretty repetitive, and that's how kind of it wins. But this fairly ordinary story is kind of soaked in the vision of God's provision. The servant who goes off and Abraham don't just see a task completed, but the God who provides for his promises. See, in verse 7, when Abraham sends off his servant, and he says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, To your offspring I'll give this land, he will send his angel before you, so that you can get a wife for my son from there. And then uh, the servant in verse 27, after he's got the wife uh, and finds the family, says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. Now, there are no angels in the story. God doesn't say anything. He doesn't appear. And yet Abraham and the servant said that it was God's kindness and faithfulness to his promises that made this happen. It's like the events of the mountain have created an entire worldview for Abraham and his entire household. That now they don't just see things as ordinarily anymore. Once you see the provision of God, once you see what he's doing and his benevolence, you cannot see it. They see it in the wife that's supplied to Isaac. It's not just an ordinary woman 
In fact, she's really beautiful, apparently. But, true story, but uh, it's to make the promises go forward. You see, once you see it, you can't unsee it. When you've seen the cross and you see the God who provides at cost to himself, all of a sudden the world looks differently. All of a sudden it's charged with his provision and his goodness and his willingness to provide all things for the sake of his promises and the glory of his Son. Now, I think we really struggle with this as an idea. We live in a very mechanistic and naturalistic culture. We prefer any explanation normally rather than probably the more obvious one that God has provided. Let me give you an example. Uh, My aunt was involved in setting up the mercy ships with YWAM. Uh, They they had these massive tanker ships that this guy donated uh, and they fitted them out um, with surgeries and medical supplies and they went around to refugee camps and they did free surgery and stuff all day long kind of thing. Um, For months on end they were out uh, on the seas doing this and my, my aunt got seasick. Just, which is hilarious, um, kind of not for her. Um, and before this all got started, they had this boat, the Anastasis, in Greece, and it was this big hunk of junk at the time, and they couldn't get it going, and they weren't really sure what they were going to do and how they were going to get this idea going of, of serving people around the world and telling them about Jesus. Uh, and so they, hadn't, they had barely any food or resources or money left, right? They were kind of in the, at the end. And what they decided to do was to pray because they didn't really have anything else to do. And so for 40 days they prayed. Toward the end of that time, and um, as they looked out from a room from which they'd prayed most of the time, they looked down at the water and they saw all this glistening on the water. And so they went down and all these shouts and this commotion and there were these thousands of fish beaching themselves, one after the other, after another, after another. Uh, when they counted and collected them, and there's, there's a photo that can come on the screen, um, they found that there were 8,300 fish that just beached themselves in front of them as they prayed. And this was the beginning of their ministry. This became funds sold that could then get God's mission going. Now, when we see this story, uh, we look at it and we think, well, maybe get up Google. Well, the Zelko fish, they tend to en masse kind of die in the Mediterranean. So maybe it was just one of those phenomena every 20 years of that, the fish that kind of just... God's people prayed that God would provide for his mission to go forward and God answered because God always provides for his promises. And once you start to see this, you can't unsee it. And once you, can't, once you stop seeing it everywhere, you start to pray that God would do it more. That he would provide gloriously for his promises and the glory of his son in the world. Once you start seeing this, you can't unsee it. We don't just live in a universe of chance and coincidence, but one run by a benevolent God who offers us his very son. But this leads us to the next point. And this we see at the end of Isaac's life in chapter 27. And that's that the provision we see in Isaac's life was not for Isaac's plans, but for God's promises. Not for Isaac's plans, but God's promises. Genesis Genesis 27 is the end of Isaac's life. Um, And he's had in his life two sons. One's uh, effectively a ginger werewolf, right? 
He's very hairy and very red, okay? That's what Esau means, red one. Um, and he has a young, uh, another son, uh, Jacob, who's kind of smooth-skinned, and apparently he liked to be intense, and the werewolf liked to be out killing animals. That's just kind of how it went in the Bible. Go find it later. And Isaac became very attached to his werewolf, effectively, in the course of his life. Uh, so much so that at the end of his life, when he's going blind, he wanted to bless his son and pass on the promises of Abraham onto him. Now, this is despite the fact that God told uh, Isaac that it was in fact Jacob who would become the ruler out of the two. Anyway, Isaac gets ready to bless Esau. And it's at this moment that the younger son, Jacob, decides to kind of bring about the first Halloween and dresses up like a ginger werewolf and does a trick-or-treat thing with his father and tricks his father into blessing him because he thinks he's his own ginger werewolf. And that leads to this quite tragic scene in in chapter 27 and verse 33, 32. His father Isaac, after Esau comes in, asked him, Who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who is it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. It's a very broken moment. Uh, Isaac's family unravels at this point, and the two sons go their separate ways. And obviously, there's some stuff to sort out with his wife, who told Jacob to do the, the werewolf thing. And what you get a picture of here is how God was providing for his promises rather than Isaac's plan. Isaac's plan was to bless Esau. God's plan was to build a nation through Jacob. In another part of the Bible, God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And here we get to that difficult moment where we realize that God isn't actually on about blessing and providing for the version of life that we think we wanted. And that's quite hard to hear. I realize that. And I say it to myself because I know in my heart that I want God to provide for the version of life that I want, for the family and the job and the lifestyle and the vision that I had growing up. I want him to provide for that life. But what we see in Isaac is that God isn't isn't providing for our plans, but his promises. And we can't depend on him to just bless the longings of our heart. But we can depend on him to fulfill his promises in and through us and to use us for the glory of his son. This might mean that we experience the cross in some way, the blessing beneath the apparently cursed life. But, you know... Maybe God's version of our life is better than the one we can imagine for ourselves. And finding our place in his purposes and promises is far better than the dreams our culture has given us. God is providing for his purposes, his promises, 
and maybe not our plans. That's difficult, but I think we see it in Isaac's life. But the question that raises, I think, is, well, how, how do I know? How do I know that my life that falls apart every now and again and doesn't look blessed, doesn't look provided for, how do I know that God is for me? How do I know that he's providing? And I think for that we need to look uh, in our last story of Genesis 26. Because what we realize in Genesis 26 is that Isaac's life is provided for not because of him. Uh, This is the story, the one story in Isaac's life where he gets handed the mic. The one story where he could have actually been some sort of hero. The one moment when he can do something that makes his life worthy of actually being in the Bible, right? He's in this situation and there's a famine in verse 1 and he could go down to Egypt, but God says, stay there. And then God says, I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and we'll give them all these lands as the promised Abraham, verse 3 and 4. It's all set up for this great heroic moment for Isaac, right? And do you know what he goes and does? He makes a mistake that his father did twice. When he enters this land, Uh, In verse 7, and the men of that place asked him about his wife. He said, she's my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is so beautiful. At this point, you look at him and you think, are you for real? Like, you're the boy who lived, right? You should be dead, but you're alive. A ram kind of, you know died in your place. And that wife who you're afraid is so good looking that you might die, God gave her to you. And your whole life is grace. And in this moment, when you could be a hero, you're worried that God won't have your back? Are you serious? Uh, it's, it's an all-too-human moment, isn't it? The, the one moment, you had one job, and uh, he couldn't find the ability to trust God's ability to provide. Yet despite that, in this, in this part of the story, God blesses him. Uh, his crops grow a hundredfold, he gets really wealthy, he gets really rich, um, and gets lots of flocks, and everyone gets envious of him. And he's like, well, why? And the answer is, not because of him. In verse 5, what you learn is that the blessing will come to him because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. Provision flows to Isaac's life because of Abraham's obedience, not his. It's entirely passive. It's not because of his ability to be faithful and trust in the provision of God. It's been won by the obedience of another. And friends, the same is true of us. God doesn't bless us if we're good enough. He doesn't bless us if we're faithful enough. You can't read off life that way. Blessing is given to us because of the obedience and the perfection of Christ who at all times and in all ways trusted his Father's provision. And our life is secure and knowledge that God is for us is secure because of Christ's perfection and obedience and his goodness. Because of his death for us 
no matter what is happening in our life, no matter how cursed it may feel to us, we can feel confident that God is providing for his promises in and through us because it's not dependent on us but on the perfection of Christ. So as you walk out of here into your week, what God is trying to do for us this evening in his word is press deeply on us that knowledge that he will always provide for his promises. Do you know what? I think this can mean you can even get a little reckless. Reckless in the way you want to honor God in your life. Reckless in the way you might want to step out and do something for Jesus' name. Because what we see here is that God is always providing for the glory of his son. And he is always providing for his promises to go out in the earth. And we can trust him with our lives. Because at cost to himself, he wins that provision. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for Isaac's life that is just so much like ours. We are not heroes. We are not the great ones. We are just trying to find our way. And we see in him and we see in Christ that you always provide for your promise. And Father, our lives in various ways feel like messes and we're unsure of what you're doing and we're unsure of where you're leading. But we trust that in Christ you have won everything that we need and that you are directing all things for the good of your Son and that that you may not bless the plan that we want, you will provide for your promise in us and through us. And so we pray you would use us for your sake glory of your Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.